Hello, hello. My name is Kristen Hoff, and I am a part of the Women in the Word teaching team. I am so thankful to be here with you all today and to walk through God's Word with you. Um, now, before we start, I feel like I need to make a confession. I feel like I gripe at my kids constantly about the amount of time that they are on electronics, um, when in all actuality, I was a child of the 90s, and I loved my after-school programming. I lived for TGIF on Friday nights, and Saturday morning cartoons were awesome. Um, now, one of the things that most of the after-school programming, and especially TGIF, which was, thanks goodness, it's Friday, had in common was the two-part episode. So you would get to the point of the show where you felt like it was all wrapping up, you were gonna find out what happens, and that twist comes in, and those three dreaded words appeared at the bottom of the screen, to be continued. So little did you know that last week when, John, uh, when Lynn was finishing up her series, if John had been a television series, that when she finished, the words to be continued would have popped up at the bottom of the screen. Now the blessing of a two-part episode is if you missed last week, because in my day we did not have skip to the next episode, you had to wait a full week to figure out what was gonna happen, then they would give you a recap. And the recap would have sounded a little something like this. Last week on Jesus the Word, Jesus encountered a beggar who had been blind from birth and he healed him. What should have been a time of celebration turned into a time of chaos and trouble for the healed beggar. The Jewish leadership who were spiritually blind were upset by the healed beggar's response and defense of Jesus, and so they cast him out of the synagogue. Upon hearing this, Jesus seeks out the healed beggar, and he reveals to him who he is, and the healed beggar accepts him as the Son of God. With his eyes and heart now opened, we finally get the rejoicing that was deserved in the first place. However, just at that moment, the Pharisees jump in and they begin to question Jesus. And that is where we pick up today. As chapter 10 opens, Jesus is addressing his disciples, the healed beggar, the Pharisees, and the crowd. Because the Pharisees' questions and confusion Jesus starts with an illustration, and to start his illustration, he uses what I believe is his favorite phrase so far in the book of John. Truly, truly, he is trying to grab their attention and ask them, listen to me. So start with me now, and we're going to begin reading on chapter, one of, uh, chapter 10 in verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they do not follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So now before we dig too deep into Jesus's words, let's talk a little bit about shepherding. Because if you're like me, um, before I studied this chapter, I knew nothing about shepherding sheep. 
Shepherding was not only a very popular occupation in Jesus' day, but it was also an example that God used throughout the Old Testament to describe his relationship with his people, but also the relationship that his leaders should have with his people. In Jesus' day, there was a central shared sheepfold. At night, each shepherd would take their sheep to the fold to be protected by the gatekeeper. All the shepherds together would hire this gatekeeper and he would keep watch through the night. The next day, the shepherd would come to the fold and he would go in and he would call his individual sheep before taking them out to pasture. So I have a few slides to show you what this might have looked like. Um, they came in several different sizes and shapes. You may have a square or a rectangle uh, fold, or you may have even have round. Some were made of sticks and some were made with branches, while the others would be made of rock or stone. It was kind of whatever they had around so that they could keep their sheep safe. In these verses, there are a few characters to look at. And similar to Jesus' parables, all these characters represent someone. Let's start with the sheepfold. The fold represents the nation of Israel. And the sheep are the people, the God's chosen people. And we see that the sheep react differently with the thieves and the robbers and with the shepherd. The thieves and the robbers do not enter by the gate but instead they enter by climbing in. They aren't qualified to come in through the gate, so they have to find another way. The thieves and robbers represent the religious leaders who, got, uh, who are not after God's will, and they are seeking their own personal gain and glory. In verse five, we also see them called strangers. Interesting, this word for strangers in the Greek means to belong to another. This points back to their motives and their hearts that are not seeking the Lord. Because the sheep do not know these thieves and robbers, they flee from their presence. And in contrast, we have the shepherd who is Jesus. The shepherd enters by the gate and the gatekeeper recognizes him and lets him in because he is qualified to enter the fold. These are his sheep and he is the one who has been prophesied about. Look at your verse sheet at Ezekiel 34, 23. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. This verse is about Jesus. Jesus doesn't, isn't just any shepherd. He is the shepherd, and he is the shepherd that calls to his sheep, and they respond to him. Now, I grew up in East Texas, and growing up, we always had a herd of cows. Um, we, and typically by we, it usually was my dad who would go out each and every morning and evening, and he would call them up with the same call. He would count them, and he would feed them, and just make sure that they were doing well. My husband's family also had cows. So the first time that I went out with them to try to help and do the same thing, I called for them just the way that my dad had always called and that I had helped call. And nothing. They didn't come at all. And my husband looked at me and just laughed. And he was like, that is not how you call cows. So he did it the way that his family had always done it. And as soon as he made the call, 
they eagerly came to him. Now I watched several videos online and sheep are the exact same way. It was amazing to me to watch how they responded to their shepherd versus to the other people. They only respond to their shepherd's call. Now one thing to point out is that most shepherds kind of have a general call that calls all the sheep in at once. But Jesus, he calls his sheep by name and they respond to him. Think back through the book of John with me where Jesus has called Simon and he even gave him a new name and named him Peter. He has called James and John, Nathaniel and Philip. And he called up the tree for Zacchaeus. In chapter nine, he sought and called the healed beggar. Look with me on your verse sheet at how Mary Magdalene responds to Jesus when he calls her by name. We're looking at John chapter 20, and this is after the crucifixion, and Mary is distraught that she has come and discovered an empty tomb. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. As soon as Jesus says her name, Mary recognized the voice of her shepherd. Once the shepherd has gathered his sheep, he leads them out and he goes before them. The sheep follow him because they also know his voice. Now an interesting tie back to chapter nine is the wording in verse four of chapter 10. The phrase that John uses here to say that the shepherd has brought the sheep out is the same as the, ver the word used in verse 34 of chapter 9 when the Pharisees cast out the healed beggar. It's a great example of the difference between the shepherd and the Pharisees. The Pharisees do not have the best interest of the sheep in mind. Instead, they have... Um, been divisive and cruel, and they cast people out from fellowship with the Lord when they don't suit their own purposes. The shepherd, when he brings out the sheep, he takes them out to pasture to find blessing and nourishment. The Pharisees are known as the thieves and robbers who threw out the healed beggar, but Jesus the shepherd leads him out from under the law and into the flock of God. So the only character that we haven't talked about yet is the gatekeeper. He is the one that guides the sheep by night and lets the shepherd in. There are several thoughts on who this could be and there are two of them that stood out to me the most. The first is that he could be John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the forerunner of Christ and he is the one that prepared the way for him. Secondly, this could also be the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes down and lands on Jesus during his baptism, and the Holy Spirit is the one that opens the ears of the sheep so that they can hear his call. No matter who the gatekeeper is, the most important thing to notice about these verses is the relationship that the shepherd has with his sheep. He knows them, he leads them, and they know and follow him. So despite using an illustration that the Pharisees should have known and understood, they are still confused. For chapter 9 dealt with spiritual blindness, chapter 10 is dealing with spiritual deafness. 
And because of their confusion, Jesus continues with his illustration and then he expands on it. So at first glance, it may look like he's changing his illustration up, but it is more like there's something missing in translation because we don't know a lot about shepherding. Um, So one of the neat things that I learned about shepherding is that during certain times of the year, the shepherds would pull their sheep out and they would go further out to pasture than usual. And they would do this to take advantage of good grazing and good water. During these times, the shepherds would use a natural fold. It would have been a cave or maybe a narrow uh, cut in the terrain, but then the shepherd would stay at the opening of that natural fold and he would allow the sheep to come in and out and graze as they needed and then come in and rest with his protection. So I have a picture of what one of these natural folds may have looked like. So it should look like a cave and there are stones placed there at the opening of the cave. And where those stones are is a small narrow area. And that is where the shepherd would have stood or laid during the night to keep watch and keep protection over his sheep. So let's pick back up now, starting in verse seven. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So again, Jesus starts with that phrase, truly, truly. Remember, he's telling them, listen to me. What I am saying is important. I am a mom of two teenage-ish boys, um, and I can feel and hear the emotion that Jesus is saying when he says these words. He is looking at them and saying, please just listen to me. What I am saying is important, and you need to know this. He tells them, I am the door of the sheep. This is the third I am statement here in the book of John. And knowing that the shepherd was the door of the fold, this expands perfectly on those previous verses. Through him and through him alone will the sheep receive salvation. We saw in the previous verses that Jesus calls the sheep out of the fold, out from under the law, into something new. He is offering to Israel to come out from the burden of the law and into his grace. Look, at with, look with me at your verse sheet at, at John 1, verses 16 and 17. For from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. For the law has given, was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This promise is for all who are in Christ. We will see a little further down on in this passage that this flock will not be just those called out of Israel, that there will be others that he will call as well, and those will be the Gentiles. So the phrase here in verse 9 that says the sheep will go in and out and find pasture does not imply that we can go in and out of God's fold or that we can lose our salvation. What this is talking about, and it's just painting a picture of what the blessing and nourishment that the sheep receive through the door of salvation. 
He gives us abundant life. Jesus offers us nourishment through his word. He quenches our thirst through eternal life. And as we go into the fold, we get rest and protection through him. Just as a shepherd does for his sheep. This is a picture of what abundant life looks like. It is complete and total reliance on Jesus, our shepherd. So look with me on your verse sheet at Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in path of righteousness for his name's sake. He gives us abundant life. And while Jesus wants for us abundant life, there are those who do not desire that for us. The thieves and robbers that he mentions here once again represent the Jewish leadership and they are, represent the wicked and corrupt leaders from both the past and the present in Israel. Those sheep who come through the door and are in Christ do not listen to the thieves and robbers. Where the Jewish leaders exploit the sheep for their own gain and take advantage of them, those that go through the door find provision and protection in Christ. The goal of the thief is to steal, kill, and destroy. They destroy life, and Jesus gives life. Look at John 14:6 on your verse sheet. Jesus says to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is our way. Jesus is the only way. So now let's pick, let's pick back up in verse 11 of chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. This is the fourth I am statement here in the book of John. And in this section, the good shepherd is contrasted with the hired hand. Where the thieves and robbers that we talked about earlier represent the evil and corrupt leaders in Israel, the hired hand isn't as much evil, but instead is a leader that is selfish or self-serving. He stands guard over the sheep, but only because there is something to gain from that. As soon as he sees trouble, he runs and he flees. And when he does, the wolf comes and the wolf can do as he wills with the sheep because they are left unprotected. The hired hand sacrifices, him, sacrifices the sheep so that he may stay safe. Now, I know I've told y'all this probably before, but my family and I love to visit the national parks. So several years ago, we visited uh, Yellowstone and at one of the trailheads was this sign. This sign warned us that bears were frequenting the area. So naturally, we all start joking about who possibly was the slowest out of our family or maybe who might accidentally trip first um, because we all know that all you have to do is be faster than the last person and you will stay safe. 
Um, so just to satisfy curiosity, we saw no bears. And in all actuality, I am probably the slowest, so that would have been a rough one for me. This is a warning that Jesus is giving them. How often do we become the hired hands? How often do we see trouble coming for the Good Shepherd sheep? And instead of helping, we flee. I know for myself, that's probably more often than I would like to admit. Instead, I should have the same heart as the Good Shepherd. And I should be willing to go out of my comfort zone and help his sheep. Thank goodness, though, that we have Jesus. Unlike the hired hand, he is selfless. He is willing to give himself completely and totally and lay down his life so that we can be safe. Charles Swindoll says this about the hired hands. This sets Jesus apart from the religious leaders who supposedly shepherd the people of God. Whereas he is selfless, they are selfish. Whereas he would lay down his life for the sheep, they would abandon all to save themselves. Whereas Jesus lived in complete obedience to the Father, they obeyed their own lusts. Another thing to note about the hired hand is that he does not own the sheep. Jesus, the good shepherd, is the owner of the sheep. The Father has given them to him, and he will purchase them on the cross. Look at your verse sheet at Ephesians 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We were created through him, and by laying down his life, he redeems us, which means to buy or to purchase. So let's continue reading here in chapter 10, starting in verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Our good shepherd knows me. I hope that I never lose the awe that that makes me feel. Our good shepherd knows us and he loves us intimately. He uses his relationship with the Father as a model of how we should uh, know him. This word know that Jesus uses here in this passage is the same word to show the intimacy between a husband and a wife. This is a relationship that is loving and intimate. It is not something that is just casual. Jesus knows and loves his sheep just as the Father knows and loves Jesus. And we, in turn, must know and love Jesus just as he knows and loves the Father. So how could we possibly get to know Jesus? Um, it would be the same way that we get to know anybody. We spend time with him. In order to know Jesus, we have to spend time in his word. The whole of scripture speaks to who he is. We also have to spend time in prayer and talking with him and pouring out our heart. Jesus modeled this all the time for us. It is the love that Jesus has for us, for his sheep, and this explains why he is willing to lay down his life for us. 
Look at your verse sheet on, at 1 John 3.16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. What Jesus tells us in verse 16 would have been a completely radical idea. He tells the crowd that's around him that there were other sheep that are not of this fold. So remember the fold represented the nation of Israel. So anyone outside of that would have been the Gentiles. These other sheep also listen to the good shepherd's voice and together they will make one flock with one shepherd. Look at your verse sheet at Ephesians 2. It's verses 13 and 14, and it says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made, made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. This would have been a shock to the Jews because they were God's chosen people. And this is the first time in the book of John that Jesus has mentioned the Gentiles as part of his flock. So look with me now, starting in verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Now for a third time, Jesus mentions that he will lay down his life for his sheep. Three is an important number in the Bible. Three represents eternal life. It represents completion and is a symbol of God's power. There are three in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus tells us for three times so that we will know that this is a big idea, that he will lay down his life. John 3.16 tells us that this is so that we can receive eternal life. Look on your verse sheet with me. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus tells us that for this reason the Father loves him. So while this may sound like the Father's love is conditional based upon this act, the Father doesn't love Jesus just because of what he will do. He loves him because Jesus loves the Father, and in loving the Father, he listens and obeys and acts on that. And that adds to that intimate relationship that they have. So thinking about this, I thought of my husband. Um, he and I will be married, I guess, 20 years in this coming August. Um, which sounds like a long time, but I can tell you the day that we got married, I thought I loved him the most that I could ever love anybody else in the whole world. Um, and I always love him, at least most days. Um, but there are always times that I see him do things for myself or for my boys that I know are a sacrifice for him. And that makes the love, for I, the love that I have for him that I didn't think could change at all just grow even stronger and bigger. And it's not because of the things that he does, but it's because of his heart behind those actions. I know he does them because he loves us. The father sees the son sacrifice himself and he loves him even more. 
So speaking of family, um, I, I told you I have two boys um, who are always in trouble and always coming up with plans. And I always know what they're doing. And when I see them in the act of doing something that I know is gonna be foolish, they usually do something kind of like this. And they will laugh and giggle because they know that I know what they're up to. And that somehow they do it anyway. This whole time, Jesus has been talking to the whole crowd. But I really truly believe at this next point, he looks straight at the Pharisees. He is telling them, uh, he looks straight at the Pharisees and he looks at them because they are plotting against him. And he looks at them and he tells them, they cannot take his life unless he lets them. He has been given the authority by the Father and he will be the one that freely gives his life and he will take it back up, back up again. So in other words, they may be plotting to take his life, but he is still the one that is in control. Warren Rearsby words it this way, Jesus' voluntary death was followed by his victorious resurrection. From the human point of view, it appeared as if Jesus was executed, but from the divine point of view, he laid his life down willingly. This is also a great example of Jesus' deity and humanity coming together as one. Nothing is more profound to me than to think that my good shepherd must also be the Lamb of God. So unfortunately, I left this last verse off of your verse sheet. So you may wanna write down John 1, 29. But in this verse, John the Baptist sees Jesus and he says this of him, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, came so that we could be welcomed into the fold of God. So after Jesus finishes this illustration, we immediately see a division amongst the Jews who were present. Some claim that he had a demon and that he was insane, while others defended him and said, these are not the words of someone who has a demon oppressed and who is being oppressed by a demon. And they give the example of the healed beggar. How can someone oppressed by a demon heal a blind man? This is exactly what Jesus started out describing at the beginning of this chapter and something that we see happening still today. When the shepherd goes into the fold, he calls his sheep and they respond and follow him. But for those who are not his sheep, they turn away and do not follow. So this next half of chapter 10 marks the end of Jesus's public ministry and for the book of John. For over three years, Jesus has traveled throughout Israel and he's been teaching and performing signs and calling his sheep. However, the Jewish leaders and others in uh, Israel do not believe and follow him. So look at your verse sheet with me at John 1, 11. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Jesus will try one more time right here to try and convince this Jewish leadership to believe and follow him. This confrontation starts in verse 22 here and it takes place in the Feast of Dedication. This is about two months after Jesus just got through teaching them about the Good Shepherd. So read with me now, beginning in verse 22. At the time of the Feast of Dedication, it took place in Jerusalem. It was winter. 
And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. And the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. So the Feast of Dedication is not one of the feasts that was prescribed under the Mosaic Law. This was one that was celebrated uh, during the intertestamental time and it is still celebrated today. So the Feast of Dedication is when the temple was re-consecrated after it was recaptured by Judas of Maccabeus in 164 BC. Some people had come in and they had overtaken the temple and they had even set up an altar and had uh, sacrificed a pig on it to one of their false gods. This feast of dedication is still celebrated today and many of us actually know it as Hanukkah or the Festival of Lights. So one thing I've learned about John in the study of this book is that he has a love for language. His words are purposeful and they all carry meaning. So John's audience would have known that the Feast of Dedication was always in December. So by him pointing out that it was winter, it's, always a, it's also a description of the Pharisee's spiritual state. Typically here in Texas, our winters are a little mild, um, but this year was a little different. We experienced winter like we have never experienced it before. Um, and I don't like it. It is not my favorite season. Winter is cold and it is dark. It is gloomy and it's depressing. And as we learned this year, it can even be deadly if you're not prepared for it. This is a perfect picture of the Jewish leaders' hearts. As Jesus walked in the temple, the Jewish leadership gathered around him. Or more accurately, the word means to close in. So I kind of think of bullies on a playground. They're coming in and they're surrounding him. The religious leaders have one demand of Jesus, and that is, tell us plain who you are. This is a good question, and it's one that we all need to ask. And Jesus answers them by telling them that he has already told them. His actions speak louder than his words. He has shown them through his signs and his wonders, and these works are what bear witness to who he is. He also very plainly tells them that they do not know because they are not his sheep. He reminds them of what he told them about his sheep. His sheep hear his voice and they respond and listen to him. Because Jesus' sheep hear him, know him, and follow him, they have the blessing of eternal life. This blessing of eternal life comes with the assurance that Jesus' sheep can never be taken from him. Eternal life is a gift and it's something we never could earn, but it can also never be taken from us. So I read a great story that illustrates this idea. So a father and son are walking beside a busy highway. And instead of the father saying, son, take my hand and hold on to keep you safe. He simply reaches down and he grabs the son's hand and he holds firm. 
Which is safer, the son holding on to the father or the father holding on tightly to the son? Jesus's sheep are secure, not because the sheep hold on to the shepherd, but because their shepherd holds on tightly to them. God the Father also protects the sheep. He has given them to Jesus, and nothing can foil his plan of salvation for Jesus' flock. Now, if this was not plain enough, Jesus tells them, I and the Father are one. This was mind-blowing to the Jewish leaders. Jesus could not have spoken more plainly with this statement. They very clearly understood that this was a claim of deity. So they picked up stones and sought to stone him. Look at Jesus' response beginning in verse 32. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, the scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God. So the whole of chapter 10 has been to contrast Jesus versus the Jewish leadership. And this is no different. The Jewish leaders' reaction to Jesus' words are out of anger and violence, whereas Jesus' reaction is one of calm and wisdom. Before the Jews could act and stone him, he asks them, For which of my works do you stone me? Their answer is that it's not his works that are causing them to be angry, but it's because they are claiming that he is blaspheming. So they are accusing him of being a man who makes himself God. So if only they knew that he truly was God come to earth as a man. Jesus doesn't deny their claim. Instead, he calmly defends himself with scripture and he tries for a final time to convince them to believe. He uses Psalm 82 as his argument, which ironically was about leaders who God had appointed who were acting unjustly and evil in his eyes. Look with me on your verse sheet at Psalm 82, and we're going to read verses 1 and 2 and then verse 5. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkest, darkness, and in all the foundations of the earth are shaken. These gods in the psalm refer to human judges. Jesus' basic argument is this. If in Scripture God the Father calls men gods, then why is it blasphemy to say that I am the Son of God? The judges referred here in this psalm were evil and unjust, whereas Jesus is consecrated and sent by the Father. This is a reference back to the Feast of Dedication, where they're celebrating that the temple was re-consecrated, just as Jesus was consecrated by the Father. We're going to see here now in verse 37 and 38 that Jesus wraps up his defense 
but it also shows his heart. The good shepherd is trying one more time to call his sheep, but they are unwilling to listen. So let's look again, beginning in verse 37. If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Jesus asks the Jewish leadership to consider his words in light of his actions. He is asking them to weigh whether or not his words are true. And if his words speak to the Father, then they must conclude that the Father is in him and he is in the Father. However, the cold hearts of the Jewish leadership could not hear the shepherd's pleading call. So they seek to arrest him instead. Jesus escapes their hand and he goes across the Jordan River to where John had been baptizing and where his ministry began. Jesus' public ministry has come full circle from beginning to end, and this is important. Even though his public ministry was over, his ministry is not. While he was across the Jordan, the good shepherd continued to call his sheep, and many came and many believed. Even today, Jesus still continues to call his sheep. He is our good shepherd, and he knows us, and he calls us in order that we may have abundant life. Have you heard the call of your shepherd, and do you follow him? This is a choice that we make once when we accept and we believe in him as our savior, but then we also have to make that choice each and every day to continue to follow him. Have you entered through the door of faith so that you can be safe, saved? Abundant life really does wait for you on that other side. I can tell you that my life is completely and totally different because of Jesus Christ. I have hope, I have grace, and I have more joy than I ever could have believed that would be possible. Do you desire to know the Lord more intimately? He knows you, and we should desire to know him more and to know him intimately. Look at your verse sheet at 1 Peter 5, 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Our good shepherd is coming back. This world is not our home, and I really believe that when our shepherd comes back, we will hear those trumpets call, and then we will hear his voice. We will hear him say to us, Kristen, I'll be here. Kristen, come to me. It will be an amazing day. Pray with me. Dear Gracious Father, thank you for who you are and how you love us. Thank you for sending us a good shepherd that loves us and is willing to give his whole self, his whole life, so that we may accept him 
and come to a saving grace and saving knowledge um, and be in your flock forever. Lord, I thank you for the abundant life and for the nourishment that you give us and for the protection and love that you constantly pour over on us. For anyone here today, Lord, that has not made that decision, I pray that you will soften their hearts and you will give them a path to do that today, Lord. Lord, thank you for Jesus and for all that he gives us each and every day. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.